Hey everyone, we find ourselves in a truly historic moment, and we're all trying to adjust to new realities. And for many of us, that means staying at home and doing our best to slow the spread of a dangerous disease. And because of this, Z and I are working as hard as we can to bring you as much new content as possible in the coming weeks, even as we now find ourselves running a tiny daycare at home. But hold tight, we have stories about Viking kings, scheming queens, and even a bastard or two to tell you about. And we're also working hard on new members episodes for that same reason. And because we know that things are hard, we're extra grateful to those members who've been able to stick with us during these uncertain times. It's because of you that the main show remains free and open to anyone who's looking to learn a little history, no matter what situation they find themselves in. And if you've ever thought about becoming a member, there has never been a more vital time to join. Now here's a small taste of what you can find on the members feed. It's the first episode on a series about medieval slaving practices. And there are actually over 100 episodes in the members feed, with of course more to come, and that should help keep you company while you keep your community safe and practice social distancing. So if you like this episode and feel like you're able to help keep the BHP going and you want to support free and open history education, you can become a member at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thank you and stay healthy. History. We all want to feel connected to it. We crave these stories because in one way or another, they're our stories. Stories about who we are as a species. And that tells us something about who we might be now and into the future. And unsurprisingly, many people start on this journey to history through their own families. They search for a connection to the past through genealogy. I often get emails from listeners who write in excitedly to tell me how they learned that they were descendants of one of the main figures in the show. These emails almost always raise a lot of questions for me. Mainly, what website did they get that from? Because the truth is that we don't have a lot of detailed genealogical data on many of the figures that we've talked about thus far in the show. In fact, there is no way for you to know if you're descended from Boudicca. And yet I can't tell you how many apparent descendants of Boudicca have contacted me over the years. And I understand the instinct. Boudicca was a really cool figure, and so it's understandable that people want to feel connected to her. Same with Alfred. And actually, my I'm related to Charlemagne or Alfred email folder is pretty packed with enthusiastic royal descendants. And if any of them are listening right now, they're going to be a little bit unhappy because I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Mathematically, most Englishmen are related to Alfred, and most Frenchmen are related to Charlemagne. And that's just a fact that arises from the reality that given enough time, everybody is pretty much related to everybody else because humans have some things in common with rabbits. We get around and around. And so eventually, if you're looking far enough back, everyone is pretty much tied to everyone else at least three times. And the thing that my heritage and other groups hide from you is that even if you are related to Alfred or Charlemagne or whoever, the odds of you sharing a significant amount of genetic material with any of those figures is infinitesimally small. And again, that's just due to sheer mathematics. You've got a lot of other genetic material that's being put into the mix, and a lot of genetic material in every generation that's getting lost. So even if you're definitely related to Alfred, we still have over a thousand years of other ancestors that are put into the mix. And with every generation, the odds increase significantly that whatever genetic material Alfred passed down was lost. Edward only carried about half of Alfred's genes. Edmund, about a quarter. Edgar, about an eighth. Athelred, about a sixteenth. Edmund Ironside, about a thirty-second. 
So you can see how watered down that's getting, and we're not even at the Norman Conquest yet. So add another thousand years onto that, and you can see how watered down it all gets. And this is important. With every generation, fully half of the genetic material is lost. Meaning that if Alfred's genes were in the half that was lost at any point starting around Edgar, well then the genetic link is pretty much gone. He's just now vanished into the ether. Now, if genealogy is something that you enjoy, by all means have a blast. But I want to impart to you that there are actually better ways to connect to history that don't just limit yourself to your family. Because I feel like the connection to the past and the excitement of history can and should come from our common story. Our species has done some incredible things, and also some incredibly stupid things, and also like everything in between. And if we remember that history is the story of us as a species, and not just a part of a specific family tree, then it's something that we can all attach to and be excited about, or embarrassed about. Furthermore, that focus avoids the real danger of this obsession with being related to Charlemagne or Alfred. Namely, that the laser-like focus upon one guy from the 9th century cuts out almost all of our ancestors. And if we're really interested in who our family was, whether it be from our broad human family or our direct family tree, then we should know about those other ancestors too. And most of our family weren't wearing crowns. Hell, even most of Queen Elizabeth's ancestors didn't wear crowns. A look into anyone's background, even a queen's background, and you're going to find a bunch of regular people scraping by and just trying to survive. We actually touched a bit upon this in the sex worker episode, and over the last few months I've been doing a bunch of research into another group of our shared family that doesn't get much attention from genealogists, or historians for that matter. Slaves. Now, slavery is something that's been with humanity for a very long time, and it's come in many forms, but it's also something that people don't often talk about when covering this era. You'll hear about slaves in Roman history, and you'll hear about slavery from about the 16th century to the 19th century, due in large part to the triangle trade. But someone attending a Western school very well might have the impression that following the collapse of Rome, Slavery was largely abandoned by the West until the Americas and Africa began to be colonized. But the truth is that slavery was happening in the early medieval period, and slaves accounted for a significant portion of Anglo-Saxon life and an even larger portion of Scandinavian life. So we're talking about five to six hundred years of slavery in Britain, and we hardly ever discuss it. And where we're at right now in the story, in the 900s, is a key period for British slavery. Because it's at this moment that some scholars believe marks a subtle but important transition. They argue that at this period, slavery was on the decline, and that the slave system was being replaced by a serf system. This idea isn't without controversy, and many scholars do disagree with it. But it's because of that disagreement that I think this is the perfect time for us to take it up as a members-only topic. So this episode will be the first in a series on slavery. And it's a topic that we're going to take a little time with, and are likely going to return to in the future. Because even though the societies that created slaves generally didn't consider them worthy of attention in the record, doesn't mean that we have to treat them the same way. Slaves were individuals. They were people, just like us. And they not only made up a significant portion of the societies that we're talking about, these societies also often depended on them heavily for running their economic and political systems. 
in many of these civilizations, they are an integral part of their society. And for you genealogists out there, these slaves were also a large part of your personal ancestry. The story of slaves is our story. It's the story of us. But before we get into the specifics of early medieval slavery in Britain, we need to tackle slavery as a concept. Because while we often ignore the lives and contributions of people who were trapped into slavery, the fact is that slavery is still an idea that evokes powerful imagery in our cultural imagination. It's a subject that we know obliquely, but with a lot of emotion. And if we're going to get this topic right, we need to tackle our perceptions and understanding of the concept of slavery. We need to do it head on. For example, you might be surprised to learn that slavery in the Middle Ages wasn't linked to race, like it was during the Triangle Trade that forever changed West Africa and the American South. Nor was it heavily linked to certain cultural groups, like it was in ancient Greece and Rome. It wasn't linked to religious differences, like it was in the Mediterranean. We're going to get into this in detail in the series, but while there are a wide variety of ways that you could end up as a slave during this period, slavery in the Middle Ages doesn't seem to have been focused on widespread discrimination of specific groups. It was something different. Furthermore, the way slavery was carried out differs from what you're likely imagining. Often, if you mention slavery, the first image conjured is related to the enslavement of the Africans by European imperialists, and then the subsequent generations that survived under the conditions of chattel slavery in both Europe and, for longer, in the Americas. And when we get to that period in history, we will absolutely be addressing that era of slavery. But that system of chattel slavery was different in many ways from the type of slavery that was being practiced in early medieval Europe. The next image that you might be reaching for is the type of slavery that was practiced in ancient Rome. And this is actually where we'll begin. Because Roman slavery not only came to Britain, but it shaped future slavery practices in one way or another within Britain hundreds of years after the empire had fallen. And actually, that form of slavery, the Roman form, is important for our discussion because the fact of the matter is that we simply cannot discuss this topic without acknowledging the effect that Rome had upon Europe. And this isn't particularly surprising, as European language, literary culture, religion, the shape of kingdoms, even the way people saw themselves, each other, and their place in the world were all enormously impacted by the expansion and the eventual collapse of the Roman Empire. So, of course, Roman slavery would also have an impact. After all, slavery was endemic to Roman life. Enslaving people was integral to their economic system. It was a practice so fundamental to Roman society that it was a major pillar in the Roman concept of their political and cultural place in society. Because a slave was the opposite of a Roman citizen. And put a pin in that. In Rome, slavery wasn't just part of their economic structure. It was also a social status that was diametrically opposed to the biggest carrot that they had to promote the spread of Romanization, Roman citizenship. But the fact is, Rome created an enormous population of slaves, and it linked its culture to slavery in so many ways that many scholars refer to it as a slave society, perhaps the only pre-modern slave society, meaning that slavery wasn't incidental to the way their society was ordered. It was fundamentally intertwined with it. Now, the Roman Empire was large, and it encompassed a wide variety of cultures. And as such, the way it handled slavery could vary across these regions. And it also developed over time. 
But in general, Roman slavery adhered to a fairly consistent set of definitions and boundaries that established the differences between the free and the unfree. And these boundaries were both socially and bureaucratically defined. And this Roman style of slavery, as well as the scale of it, was largely made possible by very specific conditions. Urbanization, a heavily commercialized economy, industrialized production of goods for market, a rigid class system, and a massive wealth gap between the classes. In fact, it's estimated that the top 1.5% of Roman society owned half of all the slaves in the empire. So Roman slave society, and actually Roman society in general, revolved around a tiny subset of individuals, and most of Roman production served to benefit them specifically. And if right now you're feeling kind of smugly superior to your average Roman citizen because they were falling for bread and circuses while a handful of people were eating all the pie, well, today it's estimated that the world's most wealthy 1% currently own 50.1% of all the world's wealth. So if you're looking to feel connected to history, well, you've never been closer to being a Roman than you are right now. In fact, our aristocrats are doing it better than the Romans did. But... The very same conditions that made Roman slave society possible also made their civilization fragile and vulnerable to collapse. Owning large numbers of slaves was only tenable if there was a high degree of wealth concentration and an economic structure that made it sustainable. So when that complex organization within their society began to buckle, and it did buckle for many reasons, while the highly specialized production of individual goods was now no longer economically viable, and as a consequence, the ultra-wealthy suddenly found themselves being a bit less ultra. And things fell apart. Though, while Rome withdrew and collapsed, the slave culture stayed. But it did undergo a rapid series of changes. Because the conditions that made the Roman style of slavery possible, namely the urbanization and the market specializations, collapsed right alongside the empire. And because medieval life had a number of structural constraints that made it very different from Roman life, we don't see the same scale, the same sort of organization, or the same degree of legal distinctions that exist during the Roman Empire. So, now you know that medieval slavery was in some ways descended from Roman slavery, but you also know that it wasn't the same, and that the practice of slavery was a much smaller affair, thanks to very different social and economic structures. But in order for you to truly get an accurate picture of this issue, we're going to have to go a little further down and actually question our basic terms. Specifically, what is a slave and what is slavery? This might seem trivial to you, but to medieval scholars, these questions are a constant battle because slaving culture in the Middle Ages existed on a shifting spectrum. It's genuinely hard to pin down. And any time you try and establish an answer to this question, you're including some people among the rank of slaves and excluding others. And so any good scholar is going to want to get that exactly right. And the temptation with these questions, like what is slavery, is to go for the obvious answers. For example, you might want to assume that slavery was a tool of social control that placed one group over another group. And in many eras of history, that is the case. You have one religious group trying to dominate a rival religious group, and thus they use slavery. Or one racial group trying to dominate and exploit another racial group, 
But the study of slavery during this era has shown that the legal and social codes that define slavery practices generally weren't reproducing and entrenching pre-existing distinctions. Basically, they weren't saying, well, we already thought we were better than these people, and now we're definitely better than these people because we've enslaved them. Instead, during the Middle Ages, it looks like they were actually creating new social distinctions. And since they were creating new social classes, that makes the question of what is a slave all the more important. And another enticingly simple answer to that question would be that a slave is an individual who is owned by someone else. And again, in certain parts of history, that would be the case. However, there's a problem when we try and apply that in medieval Britain. A really big problem. They didn't have the same concept of property that we have today. And that might surprise you, since people tend to assume that the structures that underlie their culture are static and universal and natural. But things like property and ownership are just concepts. And more importantly, they're cultural ideas that have changed from era to era and from culture to culture. And in the Middle Ages, the idea of property was in a state of flux. So today, if I asked you to define a core aspect of owning property, you might say that it's the ability to buy and sell that property. And within our culture, that's a pretty good guess at defining an element of ownership. However, Penda probably wouldn't have included that in his definition of property. For the Anglo-Saxons of that period, ownership was more complex, and it often had a kind of shared quality. For example, if you were gifted something of value by your lord, it might not be considered one of your rights to go and sell that thing. It's also entirely possible that that thing would automatically go back to your lord on the event of your death. Land ownership was similarly layered. And ultimately, a king could have the final say in most of a person's possessions or land. Slaves, similarly, belong to individuals, but in a complex and sometimes layered way. So if we're going to define slaves by their ability to be bought and sold on a free market, we probably would find a lot of people in the fields who weren't slaves, and that would probably come as a surprise to their masters. We also struggle to define medieval slavery through the conditions of their work. For example, you might assume that a slave was someone who was tasked with a job who wasn't free to quit that job. You're going to work in that field till your master gives you a different job or you die. And that might feel like a good definition, but here's the problem. Medieval serfs were, by definition, bound to the land and obligated to provide duties to their lord. And yet, many medievalists argue that serfs were a class that was importantly distinct from slaves. And to argue this, they say that, well, while you're still connected to the land and you're not free to quit, landlords didn't wield the same kind of control over their serfs that a master held over a slave. For example, a serf might not be free to leave, but he was entitled to his lord's protection and he was free to work a plot of land for his own subsistence, in addition to whatever duties he owed his lord. But this line of reasoning puts us in a really strange place where all of a sudden slavery in the Middle Ages becomes a question of labor relations. And the distinction between a slave and the bonded lower classes is one of relative bargaining power between the free and the unfree. And while this distinction between slave and serf is important to medievalists, I feel the need to acknowledge that the moral difference here is pretty slim. Think of it this way. If I force you to work in my kitchen and make all my food, and you also have to make all the food for any parties I throw, and you can never quit my kitchen or leave in any way, are you really not my slave just because I allow you to make yourself a sandwich every day for lunch? 
And this right here is the trouble with defining slavery during the Middle Ages. Because not only was unfreedom handled in varying ways, but with any given situation, it often feels like we're just splitting hairs. Sometimes we see slaves that look more like serfs. Sometimes we see serfs that look like slaves. And this issue has led medievalists to look for other markers that might differentiate slavery from serfdom. For example, some medievalists look at the situation through a socioeconomic lens by asking if the person has access to public political life or if they're excluded from it. Essentially, are you barred from having a stake in society? Other medievalists have developed a sort of checklist, a set of social and physical symptoms that can point to whether you're more of a slave or a serf. This checklist includes the ability to control your labor, your access to property, access to justice, social mobility, political access, list of duties, that sort of thing. And the thought goes that if you don't reach a certain number of checks, then boom, you're a slave. The most poetic option, in my opinion, is Patterson's definition of slavery. He said that a slave is someone who has experienced social death. Essentially, someone who is excluded from all social ties other than those defined solely through his or her master. And that certainly does sound like slavery. But it raises a question. Do you suddenly transition to non-slave status if you marry without seeking your master's permission? Meanwhile, Tester lowered the bar, saying that if you're legally excluded from at least one fundamental aspect of life, as defined by your community, then you're a slave. For example, if dynastic development was important to your culture, and you weren't allowed to take part in any public aspects of family, you know, things like developing and passing on an inheritance or legitimizing your son, that sort of thing, then that would be an indication of slavery. Another aspect the medievalists look at is the power of the slave owner. What does a slaving society consider the rights of the master? And what, if any, are the master's obligation to the slave? And these rights do matter for the definition, even if they're never enacted. For example, a perfect slave who never undergoes punishment and is treated well is still a slave, because that punishment is always hanging there. It's always a possibility. The potential of the master to subject the slave to suffering is enough. But the trouble here is that there are plenty of powerful individuals who can subject their underlings to suffering. For example, the rights of masters over slaves and the rights of lords over serfs can sometimes look eerily similar. So while being legally subject to the whims of another is likely an element of slavery, it probably doesn't establish a bright line between slave and serf. And finally, here's the real kicker. We can't even rely on legal codes to tell us what a slave is and isn't. Even though it's a welcome moment of insight whenever a legal code mentions slavery, that simple mention doesn't resolve the issue for us, because we can't be sure that the laws are evidence of actual social realities, meaning that the laws are defining things that are actually happening. A frustrating reality for people who read ancient legal texts is that sometimes laws are efforts at cultural construction meaning that they're laying out markers and aspirations of what those in power would like to see in the future. They can even be reflective of a pet project, or an idea that the monarch had, or any number of other things. And consequently, if something is mentioned as a law, we often can't tell if it's an actual practice that's been going on for a century, or if it's something that the new king just learned about during his recent trip to France, and now wants his subjects to start doing because it seems fancy. And there are plenty of examples of this today. 
For example, if a thousand years from now, some scholar wanted to glean the most pressing political issue for the last 10 years at the U.S. House of Representatives, they'll probably be looking at the over 60 times the House passed a bill repealing the Affordable Care Act. I mean, they did that more than they did anything else. And consequently, you can't blame our future historian for thinking that somehow this was a mandated thing by the public, who must have been just battering down the doors of the offices demanding the repeal. You certainly wouldn't know that the nation was split on this. And it would take quite a bit of digging before that historian would discover that those bills were a bit of political theater by the party that was out of power. And imagine how confused they're going to be when they learn this group called themselves the Tea Party. The other problem with laws is that there were a very limited number of people who could read in the Middle Ages, and an even smaller number of people who had access to copies of those legal codes. Most people would have had no idea what was in the law codes. And I mean, that's not catastrophic. Most people today have no idea what's in the U.S. Constitution, and even fewer people understand it. But that becomes a serious problem if you're looking to a legal code to give you an accurate sense of how people saw social relationships and statuses in their daily lives. And what I hope you're getting from this episode is that the task of defining slavery is a difficult one. Slavery is broad. It's been practiced by a wide variety of cultures and over a vast span of time. It's been carried out in all manner of different ways. And even when I restrict our scope to Britain, and further restrict that time frame from the 6th to the 10th centuries, that still incorporates an enormous number of cultures and populations over the course of about 500 years. And people, even scholars, tend to discuss this subject as a static concept, something that can be clearly defined and predicted and placed in a box. And part of the reason why I took you through the process of trying to work out the boundaries of slavery is that I want you to understand that even with our narrowed scope, what we're talking about here is blurry by nature. It's a concept that is either strictly defined, in which case it excludes many things that look a lot like slavery, or the definition is loosened, in which case you're trying to find the boundaries between the free and the unfree, and often you're just looking at a lot of gray fog. And ultimately, the most important aspect of determining the boundary between the free and the unfree is how the people of that society thought about it, how they saw that line, how they defined it within their society, either legally or otherwise. Because slavery is, at its core, social. It's relational. It's defined by the community. And not just by what it is, but also by what it is not. Like with any social status, it doesn't just establish its own position on the pecking order. It reinforces and solidifies other social positions as well. That's what makes the dichotomy between the Roman citizen and the Roman slave so useful. Because the way they were socially constructed ensured that each status reinforced the other. But because the concept of slavery is social, that also means it's fluid. Because society is fluid. In fact, it might make sense to think about trying to define slavery as similar to trying to define another social concept. Family. Family feels like it should be easy to define. But if you sat down and wrote your definition of family, I'm pretty sure that that definition would be very different from mine. I'm also fairly sure that you probably need to revise your definition a few times after realizing that certain people actually got included or excluded when they shouldn't have been. And that's because social concepts are just kind of blurry. We're dealing with an imperfect language, 
and we're people and people are messy. And as a consequence, the definition of slavery is also blurry. And if we're going to talk about it, we're just going to have to get comfortable with having blurred edges. And here's the funny thing about those blurred edges. It's not necessarily a problem with our definitions. It might also just be part of the system. Because we spot these blurred edges in the record all over the place. And when we find them, it doesn't mean that slavery is necessarily in decline, or it's about to come to an end. Actually, the definitional blurring between the free and the unfree, and the slave and the serf, is something that appears in many societies that have slaves. Even societies that have extreme slave-free dichotomies, like ancient Greece, have statuses and situations that look a lot like slavery, but weren't defined that way. People are messy. But speaking of blurred edges, this series will, by its nature, have quite a few. And that's because slavery from this period is really hard to see. And not just because our records are poor, but also because it's difficult to spot archaeologically. I mean, if I asked you to study farmers in an archaeological dig, you'd probably go and look for farms and then start to get a sense of where the farmers were and what their lives might have been like. Pretty typical archaeological stuff. But slaves? How do you find slavery in archaeology? Because here's the rub. Slavery tends to look very much like poverty. For example, if you find an 8th century burial that doesn't have any burial goods, or you find the remnants of a body that have been left to exposure, is that a slave? Or is it just a poor person? Now granted, occasionally archaeologists will find something unambiguous, like a noble being buried with a decapitated body and shoddy clothing and items that indicate slave status. But in general, slavery is difficult to spot. And so we're often left looking at any written records we can get our hands on. And of course, those law codes. So, that's where we're headed in this series. We're going to be doing a lot of digging. And it's all in an effort to uncover something that's typically ignored by pop history. And during that digging, we're going to be touching upon archaeology, written records, and the law. And so next time, we're going to talk about becoming a slave in the British Isles. More content will be coming your way soon, and if you liked what you heard and you're able, please sign up as a supporting member at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 